Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. <coughs> the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing upon the preaching of this word. Oh Lord, this is your word. You are the one who carried along the Apostle Paul as he wrote it. And you are the one who gave him this glorious benediction. This is your final word to the Corinthian church. And it is a word for us here tonight. And we need to hear it, Lord, as you intended to be heard. Not just with our physical ears. We need to, to hear it with spiritual ears. We need to, to have our hearts and our minds open to it. We, we need you, Holy Spirit, to give us understanding in it. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that by this word that you have inspired, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things, that you would open our eyes to behold your triune beauty as it is gifted to us in the gospel. Lord, help us to see, help us to grasp, and help us to grow in our love, in that holy affection for you, as we would come into contact with your blessing upon us here in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. All healthy relationships entail dialogue, two-way communication. You probably uh, met a, an individual, maybe you've been this individual, who uh, for one reason or another, they are they're overly talkative, maybe self-absorbed. Uh, they attempt to build relationships by way of monologue, one-way communication. Every interaction consists of them speaking ad nauseum, only taking a break to catch a breath so that they can then go right back into what they were saying as the other person just nods along, sometimes for minutes, sometimes for hours. It's a recipe for relational disaster. <coughs> True fellowship takes place within a two-way communication. A two-way communication in which each person both gives and receives. What's true about our relationships with one another is also true about our relationship with God. A monologue will not cut it. John Owen, a Puritan theologian and his magisterial work, Titled, Of Communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, each person distinctly in love, grace, and consolation, or the same fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost unfolded. 
typical Puritan title. He defines fellowship with God in this way as a mutual communication. Okay, this is a mutual communication, two-way communication, in giving and receiving, after a most holy and spiritual manner, which is between God and the saints, while they walk together in a covenant of peace. If you want a thriving relationship with God, it is built upon two-way communication. Communication that takes place within the context of the covenant of grace, and a communication that entails both giving and receiving. Public worship takes place within the unfolding of such a dialogue between God and His people. God calls us to worship in and through His Word. Uh, we receive that communication, we receive that call and respond by assembling, and we respond in, in prayer and in praise. God receives our prayers and praise, and, and He responds by calling us to confession through His Word. We receive that Word from His law, and we respond in, in repentance, we respond in confession of sin, we respond crying out for cleansing. And God receives those prayers and that confession and responds by pardoning us. We then receive that, that gracious gospel pardon and we respond in, in joyful praise. And on and on and on it goes. We realize that the entirety of the liturgy we just walked through is a covenantal dialogue between God and His people. That is uh, what worship unfolds in the context of. And that means that worship unfolds in the context of fellowship with God. A fellowship that is the sum and substance of our blessedness. Which is why this dialogue always concludes with the benediction. If we are to understand the unfolding of public worship as a riveting narrative, then the benediction would uh, be the, the denouement. It would, it would be the final part of the story that draws together all the various strands of the plot line in a glorious conclusion. If we were to understand the unfolding of public worship as a seven-course feast, then the benediction is deserts. And it's a dessert you do not want to miss. The New Testament epistles were written to be read in public worship, and that's why the majority of them end with benedictions, including both letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. A benediction is, is not a nice word from the pastor. It's not a, some idea that Calvin or Luther came up with because they just thought it might be a, a good way to, to end a worship service. God is the author of the benediction. It is His proclamation prayerfully delivered by His ordained servants. And in our text we come to what one theologian has called the richest benediction in the entire New Testament. We could go further than that and say this is the richest benediction in the entirety of Scripture. 
What is happening? What is happening when, when the pastor raises his hands and prayerfully pronounces God's blessing upon his people? The first thing that we need to see here is that the benediction endows us with a threefold revelation of God. Benediction endows us with a threefold revelation of God. In Leviticus 9, we are uh, given uh, a, a narrative of the very first worship service in the tabernacle, a worship service that followed a certain order. It followed a certain liturgy, and it was a liturgy given by God. It was a liturgy that the Old Testament saints would follow throughout the entirety of the Old Covenant period. And at the end of that liturgy, the very last thing is the benediction. You see that in, in verse 22 of Leviticus 9, that's, that the priest, the high priest, would raise his hands and pronounce God's blessing upon the people. The raising of the hands represented the laying on of hands. Since the, the high priest was unable realistically to lay his hands physically on all the people assembled at the tabernacle, he would lift his hands up high, point them out towards the people as he conveyed and communicated the blessing of God to them. In number six, Moses records the substance of the benediction that the priests were to mediate to the people. We're very familiar with these words. Number six, 24 through 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God prescribes here a threefold declaration of his name. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. I call the benediction a prayerful proclamation. Because the benediction is primarily a proclamation, not a prayer. But as it is mediated through God's priests or through his pastors, uh, the, the priest is, is dependently looking to God to, to give it, even as he authoritatively declares it to the people. It's, a, it's an interesting dynamic that... It's, it's hard to describe that, that as, as I as a pastor, and as I will do here in, in just a little bit, raise my hands to authoritatively declare God's blessing upon his people. I'm at the same time praying, God, bless your people, keep your people, cause your face to shine upon your people, cause them to go into this new week basking under your blessing. I recognize I, I can't give that. Only God can. It's a prayerful proclamation. And in verse 27 of number 6, God tells us the spiritual significance of the benediction. So shall the priests put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. God is the blesser. And in the benediction, God's name, the Lord, is being put upon His people as the sum of and substance of their blessedness. In the benediction, God is saying to his people, I am yours, and you are mine. 
we saw a number of weeks ago at the Cornerstone that that's precisely what God is doing in our baptism. In Matthew 28, 19, that our triune God puts his name upon us in the baptismal waters. And he says, this one is mine. Now, we, we do this all the time. Uh, for example, I have my name in the inside of my Bible here. And that's so that no one gets confused about who this Bible belongs to. It's mine. And in, in a similar way, God puts his name upon his people so that they don't get confused about who they belong to. They're his. He does that one time through his ordained servants at the baptismal founts. But then he continues to do it, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, through the benediction, as he confirms the fact that his name is upon us for our good and for the good of our children to a thousand generations. In other words, the benediction doesn't just tell us something about God, it tells us something about ourselves. And as Christians, we constantly need to be reminded of who we are. We're so prone to forget whose we are. We are God's through a gracious covenant bond and we have Him as our blessedness and our exceeding great reward. That is what is being impressed upon us, revealed to us every time God declares His blessing upon us in the benediction, he's freshly putting his name upon us. He is endowing us with a fresh revelation of himself in his relation to us. And just as the, the name of God that he puts on us in baptism is a threefold name, if you look back at uh, Matthew 28:19, you, you will find that the, the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Name there is in the singular. Not only is one name, this is Yahweh. But it's a threefold name. The singular name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So too, uh, with the name that God puts upon His people in the benediction. I can't help but, but wonder if this threefold pronouncement in Numbers 6, the Lord... The Lord, the Lord. If this is God's subtle way of preparing us for the fuller new covenant revelation of his threefold name, which he puts upon us in the benediction. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. When the pastor's hands are raised and he prayerfully pronounces the benediction upon us, we are being endowed with a threefold revelation of God. He is communicating his tri-personal being to us. And as those of us who are in the New Covenant having a, a fuller revelation than the saints did under the Old Covenant, when we hear the, the priestly benediction of Numbers chapter 6, let me suggest that, that you hear it this way. The Father bless you and keep you. The Son make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
the Spirit lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. It is the triune of God that is put upon us. And that is because it's the triune God who is the sum and substance of our blessedness. What is blessing? What does it mean to be blessed? Well, it means ultimately that we have God as our God. He is our blessedness. He is our reward. He is our exceeding great joy. And that reality, having God as our God, necessitates and entails relationship with Him. We see that uh, the, the benediction doesn't only endow us with a threefold revelation of God, but it enjoins us to a threefold relation to God. So second point, the benediction enjoins us to a threefold relation to God. Our God who is one in essence and three in person communicates himself to us in the benediction. And we are called to worshipfully receive that gracious communication, and to respond in, in praise. That's why at, at Cornerstone, we uh, almost always will follow the benediction with a doxology. Now, there's, there's debate here in, in Reform circles, and I don't, don't want to get into that. We want to give God the last word. Okay? That's why the benediction comes last. <laughs> but... God's final word is so breathtakingly glorious that we cannot help but just burst forth in praise, in doxology for how good God is. The triune God is ours, and we are His, and we experience distinct communion with each of the persons of the Godhead. The triune God is one. And every act of God is an act of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The, the persons can be distinguished from one another, but they can never be separated from one another. And yet the scriptures do attribute certain acts to certain persons without excluding the other two. We call this in, in theology the doctrine of appropriations. It's a very important doctrine in, in Trinitarian theology that a particular act of God or a particular effect of God in the world may be attributed to or appropriated by one of the persons in a special way without excluding the other two persons. And in this glorious benediction, Divine grace is distinctly attributed to the Son. Divine love is distinctly attributed to the Father. And divine fellowship is distinctly attributed to the Holy Spirit. Paul begins with the Son of God incarnate. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace is the undeserved favor and kindness of God more than being undeserved, it's actually the exact opposite of what we deserve. We, because of our sin, deserve God's unfavorable wrath. But this amazing grace, this grace of God, it is communicated to us in a special way through the Son of God incarnate. Paul talks about this back in chapter 8, verse 9. 
He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The eternal Son of God left the riches of heavenly glory to come down to this earth, to assume our frail humanity, to suffer the unfavorable wrath that your sin and my sin deserve. And he did it all so that we might be reconciled to God and know God's gracious favor and kindness. It is in the incarnate Son of God who has risen and ascended as Lord of all that sinners like us can know divine grace. God the Son, when the, the benediction is going forth, God the Son, he, he is saying to us, through my work as mediator, divine favor is yours. Abide in my grace. Paul then moves from the grace of the Son to the love of the Father. Admittedly, he only says the love of God. There's no explicit reference to the Father here, but if you read the letter in its entirety, and if you read all of Paul's letters together, you will quickly recognize that every time that Paul refers to God as distinct from Christ, it is a reference to the Father. You see it uh, back in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or... Uh, chapter 11, verse 31, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever. The order here makes sense because it is through the grace especially attributed to the Son that we come to know the love especially attributed to the Father. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love is a treasuring affection. And uh, we have been thinking a lot about this as, as a church and seeing how the Trinity is love from eternity. As the, the three persons delightfully treasure one another in interpenetrating communion. That intertrinitarian love is distinctly attributed to the Father here as the first principle of the Godhead. And what's so amazing about this? It's absolutely astounding. No one can give an explanation for why this is the case. <laughs> the best we can do is just receive it and put our hands over our mouths. And worship. But the amazing thing here is that this intertrinitarian love enjoyed between the Father and the Son and the Spirit from, from all eternity, this love spills over as the Father exercises a treasuring affection towards sinners so great that He gives His only begotten Son to win them back. In the benediction, when it is going forth, God the Father is saying, My heart is yours. Abide in my love. Paul then moves from the love of the Father to the fellowship 
of the Holy Spirit. Fellowship here refers to close companionship, intimate communion. Our triune God doesn't just draw near to us. He actually takes up residence within us. He, he indwells us and causes us to indwell Him so that He is in us and we are in Him. And this most intimate union and communion that is ours with God is distinctly affected. It's distinctly brought about by the Holy Spirit. Without excluding, of course, the Father and the Son. If we had time, we could, we could go back to John 14 through 17 and see this teaching over and over again. In John 14, verse 23, Jesus says that He, the Son, and the Father will come and make their home in the disciples through the Holy Spirit. It's through the Spirit sent from the Father and the Son that we experientially know the grace of the Son and the love of the Father. God the Spirit is saying, as, as the benediction is going forth, the, the incomprehensibly sweet and intimate fellowship that I have enjoyed with the Father and Son from all eternity is yours in and through me. Abide in me. Abide in me. Athanasius, arguably one of the uh, greatest Trinitarian theologians the church has ever known, as he reflected on this benediction, he wrote this, When we participate in the Spirit, we have the grace of the Son, and in the Son we have the love of the Father. And that's precisely what God is pronouncing upon his people in the benediction as he enjoins them, as he beckons them into threefold relation with himself, wherein they enjoy distinct communion with the Son in grace, the Father in love, and the Spirit in indwelling companionship. Do you see why this is a dessert that you don't want to miss? I get on uh, my, my sheep often about this. You, you got the, the snack after the service? Don't be sneaking out during the benediction. You don't want to miss what is about to happen in these moments. It's not the time to be thinking about the game or what you're going to do on Monday or, or ducking out early so you don't have to talk to people. This is glorious what God is doing. Absolutely Glorious. It's so glorious, in fact, that you might be sitting there thinking, well, that all sounds great, and, you know, maybe, maybe certain people in the room are blessed like that by God, but you don't understand what a mess my life is. You don't understand how inconsistent my devotion to God is. I was thinking this morning of Reuben. Reuben just randomly came into my mind. One of um, Jacob's sons. And you might remember at the end of Genesis, Jacob's on his deathbed and he blesses his sons. He raises his hands and he, he gives them his fatherly blessing. And uh, poor Reuben didn't get much of a blessing there, right? He had screwed it up big time. And, uh, and his blessing was really like a jab. It was a, a curse in the form of a blessing. Rather interesting. 
And, you know, maybe, maybe you sit here tonight and you think, yeah, I'm a Reuben. Like, God's blessing is going for it, but that's not really for me. I mean, that's for the Benjamins and the, and the Judas and, and the, the Josephs, but, but you don't understand. That's perhaps what is the most amazing thing about this benediction. Probably the most encouraging thing to me in this past week as I study this. You see, if you begin back in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, and you work your way from 1 Corinthians 1 1 all the way to the benediction in 2 Corinthians 13 14, one of the chief things that's going to be impressed upon you is that the Corinthian church is a complete mess. A complete mess. They're prideful, they're divisive, they're confused. They're sexually immoral. I mean, you, you just go, go through the list. Like, these people are really in a bad place. They're in a much better place by the time we get to second Corinthians, but even still, not in a great place. And yet, this is God's final word to them. The very last thing he leaves them with. If you were to rewind a couple decades, be not even. And uh, before Paul, you were to come to the Lord Jesus. He's just risen from the dead. Luke 24, verse 50. And you know what he does as the high priest? He raises his hands and he blesses his disciples. Now that all sounds nice until you realize those disciples just three days ago denied him and deserted him to be impaled to a Roman crucifix all by himself. They were a mess. And the Son of God raises his hands and he pronounces blessing upon them. And I imagine he does it with a, a radiant countenance. I just would have loved to see the face of Jesus as he gave that benediction before he ascended. Into heaven. You were to rewind thousands of years and go back to Aaron and the original benediction that was given. Who did God command him to bless? Well, a bunch of ragamuffin, rebellious Old Testament saints. They were a mess. The benediction. It's not earned by super saints. The benediction, brothers and sisters, is pure grace. Pure grace that comes to us through the mediator, Jesus Christ, who was sent according to the love of the Father, and who we are united to by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And when we receive this gift, which is nothing less than the triune God himself. When we receive this gift, do you know what happens? We are delivered from our wayward, proud, unbelieving ways as God sends us forth into a new week to live for him. The benediction is a commissioning as much as it is a blessing. God is sending his people forth and he's sending them forth with everything they need in himself. The triune God. 
And, and he is, is giving them a recipe for personal and corporate revival. This is precisely what the Corinthian church needed. Nothing more and nothing less. They needed what is held out to them in this final word. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14. And friends, it's what we need as well. And that brings us to the third thing we need to understand about the benediction. That, that it enlists us into a threefold restoration through God. Okay, I, Confess this to my congregation this morning, and you can ask them um, that I do this rather regularly. I love words, and uh, it can be a snare sometimes. So I recognize my um, my heads are a little wordy, and I, I just couldn't get them any simpler. But if you can just remember those three R words. Revelation, relation, restoration. You can just latch on to those. This is a revelation of the triune God. This is indicating a relationship with the triune God. And, and this is a gracious means of restoration through and onto the triune God. If you, if you can get that, then you've got a good grasp of what is taking place when the benediction goes forth. Every sin that's, that you and I commit, every willful sin, we commence. It's, it's a failure to bask under the divine blessedness that is held out to us in the gospel. It is a failure to live according to the triune name that is placed upon us. It's a failure to delight ourselves in the grace of the Son and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You realize that's why you sin, right? That you have convinced yourself in your own soul that there is soul-satisfying blessedness to be found in some place other than in this God? God here, in the benediction, He so graciously comes to us to remind us, to reorient our minds and our hearts to help us to see that blessedness, true blessedness, is found only in Him. The God held out to us, and the God put upon us in the benediction, is the only source of restoration of soul, the only source of revival. He alone can deliver us from our backsliding. He alone can awaken us from spiritual slumber and complacency. Have you grown cold and indifferent toward God? I mean, really ask yourself. Don't just let that question go over you. Have you grown cold and indifferent towards God? Have you grown warm and smug towards sin? It is the appropriation of this threefold blessing that alone can restore your soul. When you come to grasp in the depths of your soul, I mean, in the depths, deep down in here, when you come to grasp the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, when you come to grasp that he did all of that, for sinners like you, me, 
When you come to grasp in the depths of, of your soul the love of the Father, a love that had no beginning and therefore will have no end, a love so great that it led Him to, to give His eternally begotten Son to save us. When you grasp the, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in, in taking up residence in your soul and uniting you to the Godhead, when you grasp these things, you cannot be cold toward God and warm toward sin. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. All of our spiritual problems are at root a failure. To receive our triune God as our blessedness and to respond in giving ourselves in body and soul to Him as His treasured possession. In other words, all of our spiritual problems are a failure to enjoy the fellowship that God invites us into with Himself in and through the gospel. When we talk about fellowship or communion with God, we need to, we need to make clear that uh, we're talking about the communication of persons. Persons. What is being given and received in this two-way communication is not mere words, but through the words, God has given His very self to us. And we are receiving the triune God as He gives Himself to us in the Gospel. And, and what, is, what is being communicated as we, by our prayers and, and praise, speak back to God? What is being communicated as nothing less than ourselves as we give ourselves entirely to Him? That is what the entirety of this covenantal dialogue in worship is all about. Receiving our God as He offers Himself in His Gospel Word and responding by giving ourselves entirely to Him in prayer and praise. And God ties all the various strengths of public worship together with a denouement that is breathtaking as He puts His name upon us and draws us afresh into communion with Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sending us forth as His special people to bask under His smile as we live for His glory over the next six days. We call it a benediction. Benediction is not the time to zone out. It's not the time to duck out. The benediction is a most sacred moment. The triune God is pronouncing that He is ours and that we are His. And this, the appropriation of this, the appropriation of Him is blessedness. The appropriation of Him, that's human flourishing. The appropriation of Him is the essence of revival. Regardless of what condition your heart was in when you came here tonight, regardless of, of what you might be going through in your life, everything you need is just increasingly convincing. Personally, ecclesiastically, 
Everything you need is gifted to you right here in this God. Do you know and are you enjoying the love of God the Father? A love displayed through the, the crucifixion of the Son as He graciously gave Himself for our sin and a love experienced by the, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit as He sheds abroad that love in our hearts. Do you know that? You're enjoying that. You experience that. You're delighting in that. That is the essence of Christianity. Okay? There's, there's no simpler way of putting it. Christianity is nothing more and nothing less than union and communion with the triune God. Union and communion with the Father through the Son, our mediator, by the Holy Spirit. If you're a stranger to that, you're a stranger to Christianity. If you're a stranger to that, you're a stranger to blessedness, to life. It is just this that is held out to us, that is impressed upon us, that is gifted to us in the benediction of us. And let us receive it. Better let us receive Him as our God covenantally and graciously gives Himself to us as He sends us forth as His blood bought, eternally loved people. Let's pray.